Hey, and welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn. I'm Laura. And today we're going to be talking about a murder that happened back in the 60s in Lexington. It's a very, very sad case, and I apologize. Do we have anything light to talk about before this adventure begins? I don't think so. Okay. We're planning on going to the Titanic Museum this weekend. That should be fun. Yeah. I'm really excited for that. I know. Seven-year-old Quinn, I was really looking yeah. forward to it, too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's literally... That's, that's it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Betty Gill Brown was born on May 4th, 1942, in Madison County. In 1961, she was 19 years old and living at home with her parents while she was attending Transylvania University. Okay. She was a sophomore there, so it was her second year. She was a very serious student. Uh, she was a part of a lot of extracurricular activities. She had a lot of friends. She usually dated fellow students. Uh -uh. But on October 26th, 1961, she did not have a steady boyfriend at that time. Um, that day... She went to classes like normal. She ate dinner with her family like normal. She went back to campus around 7 to study with a group of friends for a test the next day that she was really, really nervous about. Like, she was really nervous about this test, so okay. she was studying really hard for it. Okay. Uh, she left around midnight and headed home, but she never made it home. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, she went back a little after midnight and parked her car on a driveway near the center of campus. By 3 a.m., she was dead. Oh. That's just a little overview of that day. Oh, dear. Uh, so, in 1961, Transylvania University, Transylvania University which, uh, oddly enough, well, not oddly enough, but fun fact, was founded in 1780, mm -hmm. while Kentucky was still a part of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in 1961, it had about six to 700 students. Half of them were women. Oh, wow. Yeah. Most lived on campus, which was four blocks from the center of Lexington. Which is still true. On Broadway Ave. Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I've walked around there. <laughs> yeah. Played Pokemon downtown enough. I know where Transylvania University they still is. Live, well, no, I think most of the people who go there still are... Oh, still live on yeah, campus. still live on campus. It's a very campus-centric school. Yeah. For such a small college, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it was on Broadway Avenue, which is one of the most traveled streets. Which, yes, it is. It still is. <laughs> yes. So, she lived with her parents about three miles from campus on Lackawanna Road, which is a middle-class neighborhood. Uh, she was an only child. She lived in the same house most of her life. Her dad's name was Hargus Brown, and he sold life insurance. Her mom was Quincy Brown, who is the sister of Henry Dean Stanton. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, she is Henry, Henry Dean Stanton's niece. Oh, my God. Ha, ha. I already surprised you. I, on this, I already have. On this endeavor. Wow. So... Quincy Brown was a housewife and part-time interior decorator. I mean. So, they were like... I love that. <laughs> they were like the stereotypical nuclear family. Yeah. Like, couldn't get more... Middle class. Middle class. Like... You can't get... You can't get more middle class than the dad sells life insurance and the mom is a homemaker slash part-time interior decorator. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. And as we go on, like, she just gets even more oh, no. stereotypical. Oh, like, yeah. it's really sad. Uh, they all got along really well. She was particularly close with her mother. As, you know, it happens. She graduated top for her class from Lafayette High School. She was on the National Honor Society when her. she finished her first year. She finished her first year of transy with a 3.11 GPA. That's pretty good. Yeah. Probably be. She was a really smart be. girl. Yeah. She was in a sorority, which is one of the most active on the campus. She was liked by everyone who knew her. She taught Sunday school. She sang in church choir. The people in her neighborhood called her a sweet and friendly girl with no problems. 
And friends called her likable, friendly, and positive. Aww. And she was unusually mature for her age. Oh. Wow. She was also tiny. Like, she was under five feet and weighed less, weighed a little more than 90 pounds. Oh, Jesus. So she was, she was a tiny little thing. Wow. She was smaller than me. Yeah. I'm at least five foot two. <laughs> You're like, I'm five foot two, darn it. Um, so she dated a lot in high school and several different guys in her first year of college. Two or three in the first few months of her second year of college. She wouldn't allow anything beyond kissing and light petting. Aw. So, she was, she was a church-going girl, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it looked like she was dating a football player from the UK. Well, not from the UK, but... From UK. From yeah. UK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay. But her mom said she didn't really have a steady boyfriend. Okay. So she might have just been kind of seeing him, not really, you know. Just getting to know him. Yeah, you know, like... As you do. So, the night of October 26th, she told her parents, uh, after a typical day of, like, she dropped her mom off at work, she had to use her dad's car that day because hers was in the shop, which com- does come back into play. Uh, she was attending classes, she hung out with her sorority sister, she was studying for the biology exam the next day. Oh, okay. Um, so she told her parents that she was going back to campus to study... For the exam with girls who lived in Forer Hall, and that she would be home between 10 and 11. Okay. So she drove her car back to campus, because now her car was fixed. Um, and she got there about 7.15, according to her study buddies. And at 10.15, they took a break for snacks. Betty just had a soda. And the, she spent most of the, of the break looking for the house mother to get permission to stay later. Because oh, okay. the campus closed about... I think they closed at like 11, so she wanted permission to stay till midnight, which she did. Okay. Um, at about 11.55, she said goodbye, thanked the house mother for letting her stay, and left through the front door, crossed Broadway to where she had parked her car. Yeah. And got ready to leave around midnight. Okay. So very short. Uh, there was a 19-year-old student and a friend of Betty's who crossed Broadway just ahead of her and was in his car when he saw Betty getting into her car. Okay. And he, he stopped and said hello, had a quick conversation with her. She was really stressing this exam. Like, that's what she told him. Like, she was really nervous for it. Uh, so they said their, you know, quick conversation, drove on. He saw her heading up, heading south on Upper Street, stopping at a red light, on 3rd and Upper. Okay. And at 12.05 a.m., he saw her heading towards Lackawanna Road. Okay. Which would have been about a 10 to 15 minute drive. Yeah. So, she should have been home by about 12.20. Nope. So, her parents had gone to see a movie and got home about 10.30 and noticed that Betty wasn't home. Okay. The mom was glad because she liked to be in the house when Betty Yell got home. Mm-hmm. Which, how adorable is that? Yeah. Uh, the dad had a headache, so he went to bed. Mom stayed up to wait for Betty Gale. And about 12, Betty still wasn't home. Yeah. The mom knew the dorm was closed, so Betty would probably be home soon. Yeah. At 1240, Mom put a coat on over her PJs and drove out to campus to look for See her. See what was going on. Yep, she took the rope that Betty Gale would have taken and... Didn't see it. Like, she didn't see anything. So she took that road, did not see her car. Nope. Saw nothing. Nope. She drove around. Even though that guy had seen her heading off. Exactly. Oh, dear. Exactly. That's why this thing is so weird. Yeah. Like, this case is really weird. She drove around the area of Horror Hall, like, where she had been studying and didn't see anything. So she started to drive home the same way Betty would have. Yeah. Like, looking again to see if she could see her. But she kind of expected Betty to be home when she got there. Yeah. Kind of like they just yeah. cross like, paths, yeah. miss each other. But the garage was empty. Hmm. She immediately went back to campus, taking a different way this time. Hmm. To still look for her. Uh, she drove around the campus again and got home about 1.45. Okay. Still no Betty. 
So she woke up her husband, and he said, don't worry, Betty had probably gone to eat somewhere with someone, you know, she'll be home. Uh, and he said that there is nothing that could have happened to her, she will be alright. Oh dear. Which I'm sure he is, he was, really, regarding those words, after everything came to light. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Mom said Betty would never be out this late. So, Dad got out of bed, called the police to ask if there were any accidents involving a gray 1959 Zimca. Because that's what <laughs> Betty Gill drove. There happened. So, he hung up and, without reporting her missing. But I don't know if we would have even done any good. Any, any good because if we know anything about researching true crime, it's that they never listen yeah. when... Yeah. Well, it's got to be 48 hours. That's the condition. Um... And I'm assuming at this point, Trancy didn't really have a security force Not either. really. Yeah. Because uh, that's what, like today, if you, like, you wouldn't necessarily call the police, but you would probably call Transylvania University. Yeah, like the campus police. The campus police and be like, I, like, she would, she was supposed to be home by now. Yeah. And she's not. Exactly. Like, help me. Mom called all the hospitals to see if any, if anyone had been admitted anywhere. Aww. No. Uh, so then the mom called for her hall about 2 a.m. and talked to the house mother who told the mom what happened, you know, how she asked to stay late. She left about 1.55, you know, and, uh, and that, that she personally walked Betty out. Mm -hmm. and she walked with Betty to the front door when she left. Yeah. About 2.30 a.m., Dad called the police and reported her missing. He gave her a description, her license plate number, and her activities that evening. They put it on all units broadcast for her. So, that was... So, relative to a lot of missing people, they started looking for her quickly. They did. They really did. Yeah. Uh, Mom called Betty's friends to see what they knew, which was exactly what she already knew. Yeah. There's a lot of the same information being repeated over and over in this. Right. Because they know so little. Yeah. Well, they know everything up to a point. Exactly. But after that point, nobody knows anything. Exactly. Ugh. It's, it's That's awful. so bad. It's awful. So her dad called places Betty would have possibly gone and the football lodge at UK yeah. to try to see, you know, because she was maybe seeing that guy. Neither of them was any help. So he went out to drive around looking for her. Nothing. He got home about 3 a.m. And when he got home, mom went back out to campus to look again. I remember her saying that, like, that time she would not come home until she found her daughter. Like. I mean, oh. It's oh dear. sad. Oh, dear. But our favorite person in the story is about to come forth. Oh, Detective Donald Duckworth. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but that is funny. Donald Duckworth. That is his name also from now on in this story is Donald Duckworth. Yes. Donald, I will be repeating Donald Duckworth Donald every single Duckworth. time his name pops his up. His name is not Donald and his name is not Detective Duckworth. Duckworth. It's, it's Donald, Donald Duckworth. Duckworth. Yeah. Yes, because <laughs> reasons. Because, yeah. So, he was on duty... When the All Units broadcast came out for Betty. Okay. He went to Porter Hall to ask some questions. He drove east down 3rd Street toward Upper. There must have been a point where they were all like, we don't know anything more. Like, you can ask us what happened, but we're telling you. Oh, I'm sure. Like, up, to, it's... up to 11.55, we got it, but after, after that, that, we don't know. Forget it. <laughs> so, when he was driving down that way... He saw a gray Simca uh -oh. parked on the semicircle near Morrison Hall. Yes. It was around 3 a.m. when he pulled into the driveway and approached the car, hoping oh, to dear. find Betty inside. He had seen a person sitting in the driver's seat, but it was the body of a young woman. Oh, no. Her head was slumped backwards over the seat, and he saw that her bra was hanging around her neck. He, so he secured what was now a crime scene. He didn't try to get into the car or inspect the body or anything. But he did contact the other police and have them come out. 
I mean, you could give it to him. Like, yeah, he did a good job there. Donald he didn't, Duckworth. Donald Duckworth did I not. Mean, he did not contaminate the scene at all. Which we cannot say that for a lot of detectives. Exactly. So minutes later, Captain Captain Gilbert Cravens. Not near as funny as Donald Duckworth, but no. Yeah. Captain Brian Henry. And the coroner Chester Hager. I arrived mean, he on was the coroner scene. for a long time too. Yeah. Uh, Donald Duckworth filled them in on what was going on, and the investigation began. Oh, this here's where it is. So a little after three, Mom went out to look for her daughter for the third time. This time, she was not coming home until she found Betty. Mm-hmm. Which is really sad. I'm going to say that again. It's really sad. She drove the same path as the first time, behind Fort Hall, into the dorm hall, dorm driveway, and through the parking lot. She parked her car across from the entrance of Forder Hall and saw a group of freaked-out-looking girls. Uh-oh. They tried to usher her inside, but she refused, again saying that she was going to keep looking until she found her daughter. She got into her car and saw the police cruiser. Uh-oh. So she went up to him and asked if he had found Betty Gale. It was then that she discovered that her daughter was dead. Mm. In a later interview, Quincy Brown would say... Quote, she was shaken from head to toe, felt completely empty, and wanted to scream at the top of her voice. Yeah. She remained relatively calm and controlled during the ride home, although it seemed to last forever. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah. Uh, Well, and it's weird. It's weird that she wouldn't have seen it, though. Like, she must have just timed her arrival... Just before, like, all the police got there, really. Mm -hmm. Because she would have, I think she would have seen that from the road. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. We may need to have to drive around there a little bit. Well, the book I read had, like, little maps. Yeah. Which were really helpful. Yeah. Uh, oh, we need to mention that book, too. Yeah. it's a good book. Um, I got... We'll kind of take a pause here. Uh, I got a lot of my information, i.e. all of my information, on this from a book called Who Killed Betty Gale Brown. Uh, God, who broke it? I knew his last name was Lawson. I mean, that should be good. Yeah. People should be able to find it through that. Yeah. If they I mean, can't, then... You type in... You Google Ben Gale Brown, and that book is, like, yeah. the first thing that comes up. I mean, up. to be honest with you, if you can't find it, just knowing the title of it, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. You shouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have problems that we can't even begin to deal it's with. It's true. It's true. So, Dad opened the door before Mom even reached it and asked what was wrong. I don't know. What has happened? Mom responded, Betty Gale is dead. Oh, no. Oh, no. Her funeral was on October 30th, 1961, and it was conducted by the minister who she worked with at the church at Lexington's Central Christian Church. There was a huge crowd. The church was full, and there was overflow crowd outside. Mm-hmm. The minister described Betty Gale as a very special and precious young woman whose sudden loss was punishing to all who had known her. Uh Betty Gale was obviously murdered. There was no, like, if ands, or buts about that. Um, Her body was sitting with her feet on the floorboard, her head against the headrest looking up at the roof. They could see that she had a cut on her forehead, which was bleeding, which had blood around it, as well as some on the dashboard on the passenger side. Mm. Yeah. She had what looked like a bra around her neck, along with some bruising. The two back doors and the front driver's door were locked, but the front passenger side was unlocked. But they figured that was because of a defect in the car. Huh. Once detectives got in the car, they saw that it was indeed a bra around her neck. All of her clothes were undisturbed, except she was missing her bra, which was used to which was used to strangle her. That was my face. What? 
Yes. Um, None of this makes any sense. Well, there's a reason that I'll get into later that they, that someone kind of said her bra might be off was because she was on her period. Okay. And she often would take her bra off while she was on her period because sensitivity issues. Right. But that's really the only thing they have about why her bra was off, but all her other clothes were pristine. Like, her shirt was tucked into her shorts. So, they didn't think that this was a rape or sexual assault. Did they actually look? They did. Okay. Alright. In the front seat, they found a large tablet... Not a not an electronic tablet for all yeah. you for all you not knowing people. This was in the sixties. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have iPads back then. No. A notebook, some loose leaf notes, and a composition notebook. So all of her study stuff was in the front seat. On the floor behind the driver's seat, they found her keys. They also found her purse with everything you'd expect to see. Money, credit cards, lipstick, cigarettes, still inside. So there was also no robbery. What? So she was just killed. What? Yeah. That's all they knew. They they only knew that she was murdered. They didn't know why, and they didn't know who. I can see why this case has never been solved so far. Exactly. This This is bizarre. There is literally no evidence. Well, and it has characteristics... Of a, like a, a, what do they call it, a acquaintance killer or something yeah. like that. Somebody who knew her. It also has characteristics of, like, a stranger killer. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to develop a profile when you've got characteristics of both, of different types of murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's the, really all I got for this. Is that <laughs> yeah. The autopsy revealed that the cut on her forehead was superficial. There were small abrasions on her face, stomach, back, and arms, and legs. There was a serious injury around her left eye. Oh, dear. Uh, but the, remor- the majority of the wounds were on her neck, mm. on her throat, which included a hemorrhage to the larynx and esophagus. She had bone fractures in the neck, and there was no signs of sexual activity. Okay. Her time of death was estimated to be about 1.15 a.m., which is really weird that her mom drove around campus and didn't see her car. Yeah. Because she was already dead at that point. I mean, I can't believe that her mom would not have driven by old Morrison. Yeah. I just can't believe that. Or it's possible somebody must have driven her. Exactly, what I would think. That's what I'm thinking. But like, (laughs) uh, there were lipstick smudges on her shorts, and there was hair on her sweater and on her shorts. Hers or someone else's? Hers. Or, or do they even know? I don't think they they know. know. Like they is, could, it, is it still around? Like now you could now actually Now we could probably look test at it. it. Yeah. There was blood found in three places in the car. On the back floorboard. The driver's side window. And the passenger dashboard. It was all Betty Gales. So they figured that the killer hit her head against the dash. What an asshole. Right? And they were able to get three prints to try to find the killer. There were three prints in the car that weren't... Hers or something? That weren't hers, yes. Yeah. Uh, They sent out 20 detectives and officers to look around the clock for witnesses. It came out that Betty would have never unlocked her car for a stranger. So she must have been at least... Slightly acquainted with her killer. Because she wouldn't have let just anyone into her car. Yeah, but... But she could have just been sitting in there. If that passenger door 
was defectively open, somebody could have, like, tried it. Oh, look, I can get into this car. Exactly. But then why wouldn't she have been robbed or anything else? Because it, was it wasn't somebody who was out to rob. It, it was somebody who was out to kill. That's why I'm like, this does have serial killer, mm-hmm. stranger killer. It has sim- It has signs of that. But it still has signs that she knew that person. Exactly. I can see why. Like, I'm really, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous. So, um, that was the bra thing I already talked about. Uh, Charles Ridson went to the police station and announced that he had been the last person to see Betty Gail Brown alive. That he knew of. That he knew of. (laughs) So, let's. Let's not yes. throw him under the bus just yet. So, Donald Duckworth and another officer immediately interviewed him. Well, yeah. He was acting oddly he, enough that would. Donald Duckworth and the other officer brought it to the attention of the captain, who wanted Charles to be brought back in for more questioning. Hmm. He was questioned this time by Captain Cravens and Lieutenant A.M. Carter. He not was, as funny. No. We can't get more funnier than... Donald I mean, we could. It's like, mean. you know, if his name was like Nandor, we'd be dying. <laughs> yeah. We'd be the only ones, but, you know, if his name was like Detective Nandor the Relentless, we think that was pretty fucking hilarious. We would. We but, would. yeah. So, he was given a polygraph test, and he passed. Okay. <laughs> like, that means anything, but all right. You know. <laughs> Her death was on the front pages of two of Lexington's main newspapers. The Herald and the Leader. Yes. <laughs> they printed a lot of information they normally wouldn't for an investigation like this. Oh, good. Because that way, now you can, uh, someone can say that they did it and actually sound like they did it. And exactly. Exactly. Good job, Lexington Herald Leader. One of them even <laughs> printed a picture of her body in the car. No! Yes. No, no, no. Yes. Oh, no, that no, is, no, no. yeah. That's, no, Herald Leader. Herald and Leader. Extremely distasteful. Herald and Leader, no. No, 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 no. A waitress contacted... That's so disturbing. It what is. were they thinking? What were they, they thinking? They weren't. They just wanted, like, money. You know, I, they just wanted people to buy, buy papers. I guess. All right. So, a waitress contacted investigators after seeing the picture in the paper and saying that she had seen Betty Gale at the restaurant she was working at the night of the murder. Okay. She came to the restaurant about 12.15 a.m. with another woman. They ordered drinks. Betty ordered a hot chocolate, and the woman ordered tea. They sat alone in the booth, drank their drinks. Betty paid, paid the bill, okay. and they left. Okay. Police took the waitress to Fort Hall to see if the woman was anyone there. Yeah. Nope. No luck. They took the waitress to Betty Gale's funeral to see if the woman was there. Also, no luck. Investigators started to doubt the waitress's story at this point. Also, the fact that friends of Betty Gale's were also at the restaurant from about 11.30 to 1.30 and didn't see Betty Gale at the restaurant. Also, someone who worked at another restaurant said Betty was there. At about 1 a.m. With a young man. But the restaurant worker didn't know who this man was. Of course not. Well, did they take him to the funeral and him to the... (laughs) Right. I mean... Ah, again, the papers had information they shouldn't have about this. It got so out of control that a radio station reported that an arrest had been made and the young woman had given a full confession. Who was talking to the papers and the radio? I don't know. Like, it didn't have anything about it in the book, about, like, who was talking, just that the the papers had an unusual amount of information. Well, somebody had to be talking to them. Obviously. I mean, who was it? Donald Duckworth. (laughs) No, no, it was not Donald Duckworth. I don't think that. It was Detective Nandor the Relentless. It was. The... We're big, uh, what we do in the Shadows fans, if you guys can't tell. Yeah. Uh... The police quickly denounced this, and the lead went nowhere. Obviously. Yeah. So, all they knew for sure was that Betty Gale left campus around midnight. Uh, Newspapers put 
investigators in contact with a newspaper delivery driver who may have had information. And this is a direct quote from him. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why did he just go to police? So he went to somebody in the paper and was like, I may have some information about that Betty Gail Brown thing. Yeah. And then, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read this and then we'll pause for the day and we'll... And we'll pick it up later. We'll pick it up later. Okay. Yeah. So he said, about two weeks before the Betty Gale killing, at about one, one o'clock in the morning, I drove my truck up Market Street to where it connects with Third Street and saw something I'd never seen before, although I used this route every day of the week. I saw a man standing on the edge of the sidewalk on the south side of Third Street, near the corner of Market and Third. Soon thereafter, a small car came west on Third Street. The man rushed out into the street and called out the name Betty, and the car came to an abrupt stop. He stepped over to the car, said hello to the young woman driving the car, and after being invited to do so by the driver, got into the front seat on the passenger side of the car. The car drove away after he got in and quickly turned off Third Street and went into the driveway in front of Morrison Hall. The man who got into the car was wearing a checkered shirt, had red hair, and a medium build. He was about 5 foot and about 10 or 11 inches and looked like he might be about 20 years old. I did not get a look, good look at the girl in the car, but I knew that he called her Betty. Then a few nights after seeing this event, I was driving in the same area about the same time of night and once again saw the same car drive up into the driveway in front of Morrison Hall. But this time, I saw that the car was occupied by two women. What so is, ha gonna, what is happening in this case? I don't know. Like, I read the whole book, yeah. and I still have no clue what the hell is going on with this case. Either. Of course. Well, we made, picked a perfect time to stop. We did. Well, we will be back uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow with more of this. Oh no! It, we already. Okay. I picked a good time to stop. Right. And so we're gonna pause, and we'll be back shortly. And we're back. Okay. So here's some more about the tragic tale of Betty Gale Brown. It's a new day. It is. Yeah. It's tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So when we left off, there was the newspaper delivery driver who... Who went to the newspaper yes. to tell them what had happened yes. instead of the cops. And then the cop and then the newspaper was like, mm, maybe you should. All right. So he said that he saw the car. They called her Betty. Blah, blah, blah. And it, and it was parked in, in front of Old Morrison. Yep. Okay. Now, he had a partner that said about the same thing. Oh, okay. So, it's verified by two people. Okay. After this, the police obtained Betty Gale's diary. Okay. And once again determined that she did not have a regular boyfriend at that time. Okay. She also did not use her own car while she was going out on dates. So, she had the boy drive her. Oh, okay. And everything. Um, okay. Yeah. She also would have never been alone in the car with a boyfriend. Okay. So she wouldn't even like put double herself dating in that, and that kind of Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Um, especially in the middle of the night. Which, yeah. Um, so friends were awakened about 1.30 a.m. to a woman's screams, and they, they heard a car leaving, but they heard nothing after that. This is all, like, a bunch of different stories that came in, because at this time... Stories were just flooding in. People like, were just. Where did that happen, though? On campus. Did I say on campus. It was on okay. campus. Um. Another man said he saw a man who was over six feet tall, with brown, slightly curly hair and glasses, walking down the driveway that connects with Third Street. About the time of the okay. murder. Um. Another man saw a man leaving the area where the murder probably occurred. Okay. That description is really specific for a nighttime description. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, streetlights. 
I mean, how good were they back in the 60s, though? I, I wasn't around in the 60s, I, Laura. I don't know. <laughs> don't remember them. So after a week, they had 250 people questioned. Yeah, so they were really trying. They were giving it their best um, So Captain Henry was able to collect three prints from the car that weren't <laughs> Betty's, that weren't, like, or smudged or anything. So yeah. three full... Okay. They believe that one of those friends was from a woman. Okay. Because they took very good time to say that it was a very strong possibility that a woman committed this murder. Yeah. They were very open about that. Like, oh, it could have been a woman. Yeah. Could have been a man, too. We don't know. I mean, it's strangulation, so yeah. Yeah, it could have been anybody. So they decided to print... Transylvania stu- University students first. Remember I said that there was like six to seven hundred of them yeah. at the time. So they decided to start with the male students. Okay. Even though they thought it could have been a woman, they just wanted to go ahead and do all males first. Yeah. It was a little bit more right. divided. Right. So three or four days later, they had half of the male prints, which was over 250. Okay. And there was no matches. Okay. So at this time, they decided to get the prints from her parents. Okay. Her parents' fingerprints. Two of the three prints belonged to her parents. Yeah. Because remember, her she had driven her mom to work yeah. that day, and her dad had driven her car to the mechanic. Yeah. To get it fixed. Um. So the mechanic came forward and told investigators that he had worked on Betty Gill's car that day. So they took his prints and they matched it with the last. Oh, identifiable set of prints. Yeah. So, and he did have a solid alibi for the night of the murder. Yeah. So, another bust. After two weeks of round-the-clock work, it led to nothing. Oh, man. They still had a lot of questions, but the biggest one was why. Yeah, exactly. Like, they had no clue why this all-American girl, I sh- right, you could exactly. say, like, was just murdered. Right, they had hundreds of tips and leads coming in. Most of them weren't really taken seriously, but there were a few that stood out. Yeah. Well, I saw Bigfoot on Tracy's campus, so you might want to like check that out. Oh, people are not gonna. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll get. We'll we'll get. We'll, we'll get, get right, right on, on that. that. Bigfoot totally <laughs> killed that girl yeah. with her own bra. Um, a woman came in about two weeks after the killing, saying that the. Night before she came in, she was at a drive-in, drive-in restaurant when a man came up, touched her. I wonder if it was Parkette. It might have been. Ooh. <laughs> and asked what she was doing that night. Uh-huh. She rejected him, and he replied, you know what happened to that Betty Brown girl? And left. She said he had a wild look about him. I mean... A young man in a local restaurant said he heard a man bragging about how many women he was going to have before morning. He was also described as having a wild look about him. Both times, he was described as a young, dark-haired, average build and height. Oh, yeah. That's, so, uh, hundreds of guys at Transy or thousands <laughs> within the city. Like, yeah, it could have been, been anyone. anybody. Good job, guys. Uh, the second one that kind of stood out to them was a female student at Forer Hall had an experience four nights after the killing. Oh. She was standing under a tree near Morrison Hall, mm-hmm. around 9 o'clock at night. She was approached by a young man who said, what the hell are you doing under this tree at this time of night? Yeah. She replied with, I am just standing here. I ain't mind your own business, I mean, creep. <laughs> yeah. He asked her for a tour of the campus. and when, Uh, no. <laughs> when, when she turned to leave, he grabbed her by the throat <gasps> and said, you didn't know that I am the Transylvania Strangler and you might be the next victim. Then he saw people around, so he left. He headed towards one of the campus parking lots. She described him as young, slender, short, brown hair, and a large, wide nose. Large, wide, protruding nose. Like a big, big old honker of a nose. A big honker of a nose. He also had bright eyes, no scars. He had a speech impediment and looked like a woman. Well. So he was very feminine. (coughs) 
looking, I guess. That might explain why... The one guy said that... There was a woman in the car. Yeah. 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 There's more of that that comes into play oh, later good. on, I can't too. Wait. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, the third one, uh, students on campus let investigators know that they had a student quit college after the murder and left town with no explanation. Oh, good. The student regularly studied with Betty, and so Captain Cravens traveled to Michigan to talk with the students. I thought you were going to say Captain Creamy for a minute. I yeah. was like, oh, my God. <laughs> no! <laughs> our, our ex-co-worker, Captain Creamy. I thought, oh, my God. So the student explained that he had left school because he felt everyone expected too much of him, and he said he didn't know anything about the murder. He offered to go back to Lyston for polygraph, but Captain Cravens left Michigan believing him. Like, okay. he was... He seemed pretty honest. The fourth one was two detectives, roughly two hours after the murder, were on their way home, and they stopped to question a man who was hitchhiking. The man said, (coughs) I know you want to question me about that girl who was killed. What? Yeah. He said he heard about the killing at, at the bar. And when he was asked about his whereabouts that night, he said he spent most of the night at Limestone Bar. He had left a suitcase there with permission. Okay. And then he went to the Salvation Army to spend the night. Okay. The officer noticed scratches on the man's forehead. And when asked, the man said that he was in a bar fight two nights prior. uh, The manager at Limestone Bar corroborated the man's story. Okay. And when he was asked about the scratches, the manager would have sworn that he didn't have any scratches when he saw him. It was also verified that he was at the Salvation Army that night, and in order to stay there, he had to be there before 10. Okay. So, he was there. So, it probably wasn't him. He was at the Salvation Army at 10 o'clock. So, they had a really hard time separating facts from fiction. Mm -hmm. So, the chief of police gathered all the investigators to try to organize... You organize the investigation to find a speedy and thorough solution. Good luck. I'd rather find a correct solution, but hey, that's just me. Yeah. Yeah. Major Joseph Madoka. Modica? M-O-D-I-C-A. Modica, I guess. Modica? Modica? Modica. Modica. I'm going to say Modica. He was the central coordinator of the investigation. So he made a public statement... That, quote, rumors are a problem, but any rumor might turn into a clue. So we invite comment, end quote. Okay. Investigators were interested in a man who worked on campus as an employee of the private food service, like mm-hmm. the canteen. Yeah. Um, he was 40 years old at the time, and he was the manager of the Four Halls cafeteria system. Okay. He had spent hours inside the dorm every day, and he had been there the day of the murder and vanished after her funeral. Ooh. Not a good luck. No. Not a good luck. In January 1962, two people who worked with this man were located. The first one they interviewed was a woman who had worked with him for about five or six weeks. Okay. She said that he lived in an apartment near campus alone, but he had said that he had a wife and children in Atlanta, Georgia. And she said, quote, He's a very likable man who seems to be totally devoted to his family. Talked about them all the time. Oh, talked all the time about his wife and kids. And obviously missed having them with him. He got along well with students, and they spoke well of him. Aww. End quote. He, she was surprised when he just up and left after Betty Gale's murder. Yeah. They also interviewed his supervisor, who knew him better than the first yeah. woman. And he had said the man felt overworked and asked him to hire another worker. He described the man at pretty much the same as the woman. Okay. And he also thought it was odd that the guy left so... Abruptly, yeah. Yeah. He had left a note saying that he was going to Atlanta and that the letter should be considered his resignation. Oh. Well, like, maybe his wife got hold of him somehow and said, Hey, I got a job. Like, you yeah. can come live here. Like, we can... Support each other. Exactly. Now. That's what I hope like, the case was. That's the thing. You never know. Like, you never know. Just because something, just because something happens at the same time as something else, doesn't oh. mean it was caused. Exactly. It could have like, just been a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, so they questioned some students too. Uh, they said the same stuff about the guy. Okay. So they 
ruled him out as oh, a yeah. suspect. But just to be safe, Major Modica sent a team to Atlanta and interviewed the guy. He said that he had gone to bed early the night of the murder and that he didn't know Betty Gale and he didn't recognize pictures of her either. Oh, okay. So remember, she didn't live yeah, at, at, the do- at, the dorm, at the dorm. So. She lived at home. Yeah. So in July of 1962, a woman came forward thinking that her ex-husband may have had something to do with the murder. Mm. She said that he was working that night and came home around 1.40 with blood on his shirt. Okay. Even though there were no cuts or scratches on him. Later that night, he lit the shirt on fire in a garbage can in the backyard. Wow. At first, he said the blood came from a fight while he was drinking. And when she kept asking him, he slapped her and said, I think I killed a woman. What? <laughs> yep. They oh, fought dear. all night and into the morning. Uh, so then he went and got the newspaper and he handed it to her and that's what the headline was. When she told him it was about the murder, he went pale and said, that sounds like the work of a maniac. Mm. Which made the woman wonder. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. that's kind of a weird... Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. And whenever she would bring it up, he would slap her and tell her to keep her mouth shut. Yeah. Great guy. Great. Great guy. Yeah. Uh, investigators spent a lot of time and energy into looking in, into her story. Yeah. But it really didn't amount to anything. There were rumors starting, now oh, this is really horrible, that Quincy Brown had something to do with her daughter's death. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Don't. She, people don't be doing that. Right? No. Like. No. So, she went to the police, and, the, and then she learned that the rumor had been going on for a while. Yeah. They also told her that they never believed she had anything to do with it. She gave them a written statement that they had reduced to ten pages. <laughs> reduced to ten pages, mind yeah. you. And then she took a polygraph, a sort of her dad, and they both passed, of course. In October of 1962... Oh, here it is. Oh. Well, here's one of them that's fun. Okay. Officers in New York City had their attention called to a bulky woman sitting on a bench. She had a sweater hood pulled over her head, high heels, silk stockings, and a gray skirt. Okay. As they got closer, she lifted her sweater and pulled out a revolver. Whoa. They disarmed her quickly and put her under arrest for concealing a loaded weapon. And in doing so, they discovered that that woman was actually a young man. Oh. So, they added the charge of masquerading as a woman. Which, I don't know how I feel about that. It seems ridiculous. It does. Uh, I mean, they've got plenty of charge with he pulled a gun on some officers. Right. So. This meant that they could legally do a full search of him yeah. and his possessions. Yeah. So they found a girdle, some fake breasts, and an envelope containing ten newspaper clippings about the murder of Betty Gale Brown. What a weirdo. And a letter from whoever had sent the clippings that outlined the details of the investigation. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So both the clippings and the letter were just shy of being a year old. So he had been holding on to them for that long. Just walking around with newspaper clippings for a year. Who doesn't? He told NYPD that he used to be a student at Transylvania University. And a friend had sent him the letter and the clippings. He said he also didn't know the victim or anything about the murder except what he had read in the, in the clippings. But why was he so obsessed with it? Oh. <laughs> he also explained that he was dressed like a woman... To catch the people that broke into his car. What? 
You can't make this shit. I'm gonna do some under. I'm gonna do some undercover. I'm gonna go undercover as a woman. I'm gonna go undercover as a woman. That's not as anything else, or you know, actually call the police and ask them to do something about it. That was where I was like, okay, it's okay for him to be charged with masquerading as a woman. Then he's not. He's clearly nuts. He's not the problem. He also told police that he did crazy things while he was drinking, which he had done before he was arrested. NYPD contacted Major Modica with this information. I bet they did. Including the man's name and the name of the friend who sent him the clippings. Quote, this thing doesn't look like much, but you never know. We're taking no chances. It is another lead, and we will check it out thoroughly. End quote. Okay. Modica sent Captain Cravens to New York City to question the man, who had, who they had learned was an average student at Transy from 1958 to 1961. Okay. The friend was also a student around that time. Okay. But when Cravens went to talk to the man, he refused to talk to him. He tried going through the lawyer and discovered the man wasn't going to talk at all. <sighs> Investigators couldn't find any evidence saying the man was in Lexington the night of the murder. But there's no evidence he wasn't. <laughs> so, there's that. It was also discovered that the friend was working in state government in Frankfurt. So, Cravens and another investigator went there to question the friend. Okay. He told them that they were wasting their time, that the man wasn't even in Lexington at the time of the murder. Okay. So, our cross-dresser, crazy person, wasn't but even I mean... in Lexington. You're just, you, you can't just take somebody's word for it, though. Yeah. I mean, the, like, oh, yeah, I, I swear to you, like, I know it looks like he committed an axe murder because he's covered in blood and he's holding the axe and there's five people around him dead, but it, I know it looks like it, but take my word for it, he was not even in the room. I mean, oh my god. All right. Oh my god. In the middle of 1962, the tips began to dwindle in both number and in worth. Detectives kept urging anyone with any information to come forward. Throughout 1962, detectives traveled to Michigan, Atlanta, New York, and several cities in Kentucky. It went quiet towards the end of 1962 and stayed that way until 1965. Okay. Oh my and god. That's when we meet our good friend Alex Arnold Jr. Oh good. I'm gonna leave it there for now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna leave it there for now. When we come back next week, we will learn all about Mr. A A J. AJ, as I've been calling him A- in my notes. Alex Jr. AJ. AJ. Oh, Alex Jr. Yeah. Oh. So so far, it's not great. Now, and it, it, I'll I'll warn you guys. Now it does not get any happier. <laughs> it doesn't it, get happier. No, oh. it just gets crazier. See, I was gonna do Shaker Town next after we get done with this, and now I'm thinking maybe I should pick something funnier. We need something funny after like, this. Funnier than Shaker Town because Shaker Town is like it's interesting. It's not really what you call funny. Yeah, we need some. Something funny. Yeah. What's funny? Okay. <laughs> Nothing. We'll be we'll be thinking about this. Yeah. So in the meantime, if you have any ideas of something yeah. funny we can do, send us an email. <laughs> yeah. It's creepykentucky at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. Creepy Kentucky. And until next time, Kentucky. Kentucky. What, what the, the hell? hell? <laughs>